oh, it was this visionary film and it was just a huge flop and it just, oh, it just, uh, 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 uh. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Quentin Tarantino called it one of the best films of the 1990s. It's Texan director Richard Linklater's mainstream cinema debut and the launching pad for many actors' careers, including fellow Texan and Academy Award winner Matthew McConaughey. Dazed and Confused tells a wonderful personal story of youth in Texas, and cars, and fog hat. Today we go back in time to Austin, 1976. But first, what's your favorite Gary Buseyism? Well, uh, my favorite... Gary, uh, Buseyism is that uh, uh, I, I'm cautious about fear. Fear, which is false evidence appearing real. Fear is one thing, but you got to watch out for cat. They're conniving and tactical. You can't see them coming, and you don't know when they're gone. Listen, dream another you, D-A-Y, every day is your rebirth day. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was a trio of horrible Gary Busey impressions. <laughs> you can find more Buseyisms on the internet. Just Google it, brother! Dazed and Confused is the first mainstream feature film directed by Houston native Richard Linklater. Linklater dropped out of Sam Houston State University in 1982. Go Bearcats! Go Bearcats! And he spent a couple of years working on an offshore oil rig before enrolling in Austin Community College to study film. He built a reputation in the mid to late 80s as part of the burgeoning Austin independent film scene, directing several short films, as well as two feature-length films, 1988's It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books, and 1990's Much Easier to Pronounce, Slacker. Both films were characteristic of his minimal plot, slice-of-life narrative style, almost being documentary in their nature. Slacker was an indie breakthrough for Linklater, earning him widespread critical acclaim. It was an ambling, plotless look at the day in the life of several Austin-area hipsters and outsiders. The movie hit at just the right time and was part of the major wave of independent films that radically transformed the movie business in the 1990s. Slacker brought Linklater to the attention of Hollywood, and Universal Pictures signed him in 1992 to make a feature film, though in an interview at the time, Linklater said that it was their lowest-budgeted film in four years. Linklater would write, produce, and direct the film, and was given a remarkable freedom on the project. That project was the movie Dazed and Confused. It was set in a Texas suburb on the last day of school in 1976. The movie looked at a single day in the life of a group of teenagers. There's no plot, although each of the characters does have a clear narrative arc, and the cast is made entirely of young, relatively unknown actors, many of them locals. Many people described it at the time as a new American graffiti, but Linklater himself said graffiti was, quote, nostalgic, it was that high school world where everybody wished they grew up in. Dazed and Confused is the world where everyone did grow up in. The movie was set and filmed around Austin, in parts of the town that were relatively unchanged in the 17 years that had passed since the time the movie was set. The obsession shown in the film, football, cars, cruising, flirting and dating, drinking, getting into trouble, growing up and out of your bounds, well, they're largely the same in any era. Roger Ebert's review of the film said that it is not about whether the hero gets the girl, or the nerd loses his virginity, or the bully gets beaten up. It doesn't end in a tragic car crash, although it does end in some quiet moments of truth, which are not pressed too hard. 
The cars, the clothes, and the music, a collection of classic rock hits from the 70s, are all authentic to the period, but nothing looks fake or artificial or sentimental. The film was released in 1993 to mixed reviews, earning $8 million on a $6.9 million budget. The studio didn't seem to have any idea what to do with the film, and it was considered something of a flop. Linklater said in an interview, quote, The head of Universal called Dazed and Confused the single most socially irresponsible movie in the history of Universal. I thought, wow, that's great. That's a long history. That's 77 years of movies, including The Last Temptation of Christ and Do the Right Thing. That was quite a compliment. We should have put that on the poster. You know, it's amazing when you get anything done in a studio system. If you say anything you meant to say, that's kind of an accomplishment. However, the movie very quickly found its audience on video. Since that time, the film has justifiably become a cult phenomenon. Quentin Tarantino later called it his favorite film of the 1990s, saying it was, quote, maybe the only movie that three different generations of college students have seen multiple times. The review in the Austin American Statesman at the time correctly sums up the genuine appeal of the film, its cast of characters. Quote, every one of these characters is completely familiar and recognizable. So far, this has held true with every viewer I've spoken with, whether they graduated from high school 25 years ago or last week. And what a cast it turned out to be. Though a largely unknowns at the time, some had acting experience. In the ensuing decade, many of these young actors would become major stars in TV, Broadway, and films. The biggest stars in the film at the time were probably Mila Jovovich, way before she was an ass-kicking alien or was busy killing zombies or even Joan of Arc. And uh, Anthony Rapp, who'd been the jerky nerd in Adventures in Babysitting, but uh, he went on to be a big, big star on Broadway. He was partnered with Marissa Ribisi, Giovanna Ribisi's twin sister, uh, and also Adam Goldberg, who later went on to be in Saving Private Ryan with her brother, Giovanna Ribisi. And also The Prophecy. With... Christopher Walker. Because he's awesome. Yeah. Cole Hauser, who was in Pitch Black and a whole bunch of other movies, plays the jock who wants nothing more to do than drink beer and bust freshmen with his paddle. Joey Lauren Adams, who starred in a number of Kevin Smith films, including Chasing Amy, plays one of the senior girls. And there's another indie darling who shows up, the one and only Parker Posey. And she is the snobby director of the girls' initiation rituals. And one of the standout characters in the film, the burnout stoner Slater, is played by Rory Cochran, who later goes on to be on one of the CSI shows, although, frankly, we can't remember which one. Yeah, he was also in Empire Records, and he was really good in that. The main protagonists of the film are Wiley Wiggins, a young kid from Austin who plays freshman Mitch Kramer, who's been singled out by the seniors for an especially rough initiation, and Jason London, who plays Randall Pink Floyd, the popular quarterback who didn't want to be tied down by his football coach's rules. They both went on to be in several films and TV shows. Neither of them really broke out with this film, though. There are three Oscar winners in this cast, though if you blink, you'll miss Renee Zellweger. Ben Affleck plays O'Banion, a jock who flunked senior year so he can play football and paddle freshman for one more year. He, of course, went on to be an award-winning actor, writer, director, and producer. He later said that the most valuable lesson he learned from the experience was how Linkletter, quote, empowered actors to improvise. The biggest star was a local actor named Matthew McConaughey, who auditioned for the very small part of David Wooderson, the muscle car driving older guy who still hangs out with the high school kids. He auditioned in character and based his part on a, the vocal mannerisms of his older brother and soon impressed everyone with his talent. His part was expanded in many lines, including the classic, all right, all right, all right line were ad-libbed. McConaughey's character is in many ways the most iconic and defining of his career, and it launched him very quickly into superstardom. 
His line, Just Keep Living, later became the name of his production company, and he has appeared in several of Linklater's films. Not School of Rock. Not School of Rock. <laughs> let's, all, let's right, talk. all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, this was, I mean, I remember, like, let's let's set the way back clock to yeah. 1993 when three young college freshmen were just off the bus and showed up. And I, the it, first it, thing, it, I, yeah. I remember when this was in theaters, and I remember going to somebody's apartment on call in college campus, and they had the poster. Yeah. Like the, I remember seeing, I saw the poster way before I saw the movie. Like it was off, it was just wasn't on my radar with everything that was going on that summer. That first week we were at UT Dallas, which and before I met any of you guys, one of the very first thing was I watched that movie because the guys across the hall who were imbibers of certain herbal medicines, uh, they loved, they had that movie on video and I borrowed it from them and watched it because they said it was really good. And I was blown away by how great this movie was. Yeah, I don't remember at the time being enthralled by this movie, but every time I've seen it since then, it just it it's good. I mean, it it feels genuine. Well, I think there's look, there's movies and I would put this movie in the same category as something like Blade Runner where they go, "Oh, it's this visionary film and it was just a huge flop and it just ah oh, uh, 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 uh. and then now it's it's considered just an all-time classic." And I you look at this movie and it's the same exact thing, but it's in a different dimension because it's such a, a wonderful slice of life. And then as we've seen, you know, you see this movie and you go, okay, he, he's capturing this very specific time in his life and recreating this very common experience we all have. And now he's up for the Academy Award again, which is for boyhood, which is literally capturing <laughs> a slice of life on film. It's literally over a time a machine of a movie. Yeah, over a 12-year period. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, and he's even talked about... Did, that he'd like to do another film based on his college experience, which is kind of 1980. Like, let's capture 1980 yeah. with, you know, the the nadir of disco and sort of the music and the time and, and bring all of these cultural elements into a new package and yeah. rebuild it. Yeah, but, you know, back to Daisy Confused, it's, you know, we talk about it capturing a slice of life, and we had talked in a previous episode when we talked about Texas movies as a whole how Dazed and Confused kind of captures this small-town feel that's common to everyone that, that grew up in a small town, whether you're Texan or not. And it's one of those stories that captures Texas in a way that isn't about cowboy hats and mm-hmm. right, you know, exactly. spurs yeah, and there's, six shooters. There's no Hollywood stereotypes in this of right, Texas. Right. It's not overtly Texan in the way that Hollywood want it to be. And it, that can only be the result of a Texan who makes this movie. Yeah, I mean, the most Texan part about it is them talking about going to Houston for Aerosmith tickets yeah. mm-hmm. and the fact that characters wear cowboy boots and drive pickup trucks. But only yeah. a few of them do. Most right. of them are into right. the muscle cars. There's, there's nobody that wears a cowboy hat. Uh, a couple of the characters wear trucker hats, but, I mean, that could be... Anywhere in 1976. I I, I wore trucker hats in the 80s. (laughs) Right, exactly. The only thing that ties it physically to Austin is the actual moon tower. Yeah, there's no big establishing shot of the state capitol or anything. And the the moon tower is where they have the beer bash at the end of the movie. Right, and the moon tower is, is, and he even talked about these moon towers were built in Austin in 1894. I'm just going to give a little bit of history here on this history podcast. They were built in 1894. They were bought from the city of Detroit. And the Fort Wayne Electric Company came and installed them. 
and they're essentially these giant arc lights on a on a super tall tower superstructure. And the idea is that it would provide these just big flooded, well lit areas at night that you could congregate and gather. So Linklater said in a great interview, so well, it just solved a very practical problem of <laughs> I don't have to explain why everyone is so super well lit up right. having conversations at night at this party. Like I don't have to fake it with a bunch of lights and do a lot of weird angles. We can just it's lit because they're under a giant lights. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, a couple of the accents and some of the references are of Texas, uh, the flag in the front of the school. Uh, the, the elementary school has a te- historical marker in front of it. Yes. The, the distinctive yeah. Texas yeah. historical marker. That jumped out marker. at me too. Um, and of course, the emphasis on the importance of football in this town. Yeah. Uh, that, that's also a very Texan thing. Well, the, the now we're counting on you every, boys. Yeah. We're counting on you boys to take us all the way to state. But, and that's the thing that I love of that quote of, it doesn't matter whether you graduated high school last week yeah, or 25 years ago, or, or I'm going to guess years 40 ago. years ago. You're going to say, you know, wow, like this, I can identify because there's a timelessness to the mm-hmm. the archetypes and hierarchy that is the Texas high school experience. Right, and I'm, I'm going to say something that's very nerdy and filmy and, and whatever. But at the time, Linkletter was part of the movement that was rewriting the language of film and what was portrayed on film. And so, and it largely continues today, that style of small filmmaking uh, and narrative style. And that's why it doesn't seem like it's dated to the 90s or to the 70s or mm-hmm. anything. Right. That American Graffiti kind of sometimes feels like, or that even films of 1990 sometimes feel like. Okay, but but that's to be even nerdier film stuff about it. You know, everybody likes to say, oh, American Graffiti and this stuff. American Graffiti was a very interesting film for the time. Like, it was not what people were right. making at the time. Right. And this film was not what people no, were making in 92. And Quentin Tarantino would make Pulp Fiction right after this. And he played a lot with chronology in films because that film jumps all over and you would not have taken a lot of the we were seeing at this time this this sea change in filmmaking Mm -hmm. in the early 90s and these guys who are now being lauded with academy awards and who are getting all of this Mm -hmm. recognition and are having this stuff now they were this is when this was the start and we saw it in this very simple film about texas right but it's the characters i think that endear this film and they're not, like you said, they're not, they're not stereotypes. They are, they're archetypes, really, in in a lot of ways. But my first thought of watching this film was, I can point to every single person in this film, and name a person that I went to high school with or junior high with as that's that person. That's that person. I literally went to high school with a guy who was three or four years ahead of us, who still hung out with the kids and still chased the girls, the high school girls, and worked for the city. But isn't that the magic of storytelling? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and we talked a little bit in preparing for this, that, um, you know, there's not really a a driving plot behind this film. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of a slice of light. This is the, this is one one day in the life of these characters, and they each have their individual arcs. None of us had the same experience that they had. We never, I don't think any of us had the same sort of night or same sort of day that these kids had, but we all had pieces of it. Um, you know, like you were saying, Sean, you knew specific people that matched mm-hmm. up with these characters. 
um, I remember specific experiences that line up very in a very similar fashion. Um, I remember hanging out with the band kids after the football game on Friday night, and um, we were very similar in a lot of ways to the poker nerdy poker kids from the movie, and that they were kind of just hanging out on the fringes of the big party. They weren't right. like in the middle of everything. Um, I remember very specifically experiences like uh, Mitch has with his older sister. You know, she's a senior, he's a freshman. Um, and there's the line where she says, oh, well, I guess I got to get used to you, to us being at the same social functions and you hanging out with people that I know. And it's like, I had that same experience with my mm-hmm. brother. When he was a senior, I was a freshman. We were both in band. There was a lot of crossover in the people that we knew and the people that we were hanging out with. And it's part of that coming of age process of learning, okay, how do I fit into this world and how do we navigate these things? Yeah. And this movie really captured that feeling without, you know, turning it into a, an ideal of some right. sort. Well, well, as a Mike, you and I were teachers kids. And, and I know for me, hmm. I identified with the teachers in the film and I watched it with my wife last night and she was like, where are the teachers in this school? Why are these kids just wandering in and out of I'm classes? Like, but I identified with each of the teachers, the, the, the wound up two type Vietnam vet and the shop teacher that was sleeping and the hippy dippy history teacher, uh, and the, the coaches, especially, and like the coaches to me were like, those spot are on. Spot, spot on, perfect. My brother's a coach, but <laughs> I could tell you both of all of those coaches in that movie well, you know, <laughs> were clearly, clearly spot on t- types. Well, so one last statement on story stuff. I would say, however, because there's no plots in this movie, but like there's a, a lot of small plots of this slice of life. Yeah, it's, there is it's character over, arcs. There's character arcs, but I think Mitch... As the he's the the lens through which he's sort of mm-hmm. this is the world, but it, it's making statements like you are now in high school, and this is the world you are entering, and you have to be go through this painful initiation to be part of it, and then you sort of see him come to terms with it at the end of it, and and he's he's immersed in the world. So there is, it's just it's so loosely tied together that it feels yeah. like a voyeurism watching it. Yeah, Linklater, Mitch and Mitch's character and Linklater would have been at the same same age. Linklater would have been the same age as Mitch's character because he went to college in 1980, so he would have been a freshman in high school in 1976. So I'll say this about... Um, I want to I want to shift gears because there's the other, the cultural part of this. Now you'd say, oh, it's set in uh, Texas in 1976, so you'd be like, you know, where's, where's the Cowboy Outlaw music and all that stuff? But there's Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's Fog Hat. There's, there's Aerosmith. There's all the great... There's this soundtrack of life Yeah, well, and that again, just is amazing. And again, I think that just emphasizes the fact that this is a movie that's of Texas, but it's not... It emphasizes the fact that Texas is a part of the greater world. Yeah, it's like, like Texas is not this held up as this alien thing. Oh, well, this is a Texas high school story. You cross the border and you have to get on a horse. Right. You know, it's not like that. It's like, okay, this is Texas. This is what it felt like to be in Texas in 1976, but it's really not that much different than the rest of the country. And it is one of the all-time great movie soundtracks. Okay, but here's the crazy thing about the soundtrack. Executives at Universal did not want that soundtrack. No. They wanted... To have contemporary artists re-record the songs, yeah. <laughs> and because they said nobody's going to buy an album full of old music, like <laughs> who's going to want this? Like, and he he had to he literally had to fight tooth and nail and claw to just get that soundtrack to be in the movie. 
because it was a, he's like, it's a period piece. Nobody wants to listen to that. And you would think, well, of course they learned their lesson, except that the huge blockbuster this summer, Guardians of the Galaxy, director James Gunn went through the exact same thing <laughs> because they were like, who's going to want to buy an album full of all these old songs? And I, Guardians pretty, of the Galaxy soundtrack, one yeah. of the biggest soundtrack sellers out there now. I bet if you go back and look, probably George Lucas probably had that same argument about the American Graffiti soundtrack. And that's that's really where the biggest conspiracy I have with American Graffiti is in the soundtrack is... Yeah. Well, I'd put the cars up there too. Yeah, because the cars too. you can watch this movie. If you're, if you're any kind of a car geek or a car nerd, you can watch this movie and just be like, there's a, there's a lot of old guys that got to take their, their shiny, sweet, you know, weekend rides out and put them in a movie. Including Ben Affleck's Unpainted Duster. Well, here's the thing about those cars. Like, it was just like everything else. Like, I'm going to make a soundtrack. I'm going to put the most iconic songs on the soundtrack for 1976 i'm gonna make a movie and kids are gonna drive cars i'm gonna put those kids in the most iconic vehicles of the time and you have uh i mean pickford's gto he's got that that judge gto Mm -hmm. which is an, an incredible car but then it turns out uh when i was doing some research and reading he couldn't they couldn't actually get one of those cars because they're ridiculously rare and expensive so they took a gto and then they painted it and the official color was called orbit orange for that 1970 gto uh and then they have a second stunt car so as you watch the film you'll notice there are differences between you know action shots and sort of uh, the hero car that are shown in different scenes yeah and (laughs) i just want to make that i was watching the movie again and it struck me the parallels in between this and the way that Linklater captured these characters in the same way that uh, fellow Texan Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, the way he captured the, those same sort of archetypes in his stuff. I mean, I remember very clearly watching Beavis and Butthead when I was in college and thinking, <laughs> man, I know those guys. I knew yeah. those guys, you know, when Frog I was a kid. baseball! Yeah, I mean, it's... And then later on in King of the Hill, when he, you know, his characters in that, Hank Hill and his family, it's like, you you just, it just feels real in a way that other stuff has not. Um, I want to go back to something that we talked about before, which was the quote from um, Roger Ebert when he mentioned that the movie exposes these small truths that you, if you're not paying attention, you might miss mm-hmm. them. And I mean, obviously the one that really stands out, um, if Mitch and Pink are kind of the two leads, if you could have anybody that are leads in this film. And their stories kind of as as Mitch is coming into high school and Pink is on the verge of leaving high school, they're both facing these uh, transitions in their lives. And while Mitch comes to terms with entering this new world, Pink is kind of fighting his identity right it's like he's got his established identity as the star quarterback of the football team um he's being asked to sign this commitment to the team to not you know smoke marijuana and drink and all this stuff and he's fighting against his and and they're you know his coach is asking him not to hang out with these losers that he's been with the whole film and he's trying to come to terms with okay what am i going to be after high school he's Mm -hmm. like i'm not going to be the star quarterback after next year it's like what what am i going to be do i really want to put everything into that knowing that Mm. the very next year that's not going to be who i am i want to be with my friends i want to be this other person i think what you're tapping into in the in the spirit of this film and i think the thing that, that turns i know for me 
is, you know, that generation was really kind of considered a lost generation. That that late 70s kids, they were, you know, sort of those post-war malaise. There was just weird things going on, you know, stagflation. There's all this stuff going on in America where it was kind of a, they were considered sort of a, a, a rudderless generation. So you see, but when this movie came out, you know, who were, there was this whole Generation X thing, and what is this Generation right. X? Yeah. And oh, these kids of the '90s, and who are they going to be? And there's this, there was this idea of that there was this sort of another lost generation, mm-hmm. a yeah. generation coming out of this. Yeah. Well, what I was, what I was getting at also is that um, as Pink is coming to terms with what his identity, what he wants his identity to be, I remember going through those exact same things when I was a senior in high school, mm-hmm. because as a senior, I was drum major of the band i was um very active in the uh the theater group and you know that's i was yearbook editor you know it's like i had these positions of significance to some people um but then once high school they were all like high school related it's like once i was done with high school i was not going to go on to be drum major in college mm-hmm. you know it's like that just wasn't really on the horizon for me so i had those same feelings of okay this is what I put all my effort into these past four years. What What's next? And what? Mm-hmm. how do I define myself going forward? Uh, yeah, Pink doesn't want to be a person who peaks in high school. That O'Banion's, O'Banion's fighting against to stay in high school. That definitely, uh, the definitely Cole Hauser's character and Sasha Jensen's character, they're going to be, they, that's all they're going to be. Yeah. The other thing that's in, that, that I identify with Pink at the same way, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I was going to say Pink does not want to be uh, yeah. Rob Lowe with cable television. Right, exactly. Um, and Pink's an interesting character because he is kind of an outsider in that he's an he's an inside outsider. He's in all the groups. Everybody else kind of is locked into their particular group. Pink is friends with all the... He's friends with the stoners. He's friends with the nerds. He's in the football team. He's friends with all the popular girls. And, you know, and again... Um, I was kind of in the same position in a lot yeah. of ways. I was I was not on the football team, um, but I did have a lot of intersections with a bunch of different groups mm-hmm. of people. And, you know, I was the quote-unquote nerdy kid, but, you know, I also kind of hung out with the, I mean, don't necessarily think they were stoners, but they were the people that you would can lump were, into that sort it of... It was they, in the 90s. They were alternative kids. They were, I hung out, I did hang out some with people that others would consider troublemakers, you know, and it's just that's... I. Well, you I know, think, my life spanned across those divisions. Yeah. Look, and and look, I think that's why the movie speaks to uh, us. Look, well, look, here's the thing. High school, as this movie shows us, is a lot like prison. <laughs> um, you know, it, you say that, but I it, very it, but much thought that when they're, you know, beating the kids, you know, with the paddle, I'm thinking, this is like the Stanford oh, yeah. prison experiment because yeah. they're, they're, it's the same sort of thing. It's like all the adults are looking the other way while they're beating these kids well, because I, it's yeah. the tradition. Well, and I was and, say and the more, high school is so sorry. cold and sterile and, and institutional. Well, it, yeah. it, it is, I guess, it, it is. And I was going to say, it's more like the orange is the new black. Yeah. Kind of a co-ed version. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, no, the truth is, is that, you know, you're, you're forced to go there. You have to show up every day for certain times. You have to, you have to be there. You have to associate with every. Everybody has to be mm-hmm. together, and so everybody segregates themselves into their own little groups. And you find your own little niche and your own little group of people. And you know this group isn't with that group, and that. And this is what fuels like every high school movie that's ever made. But it's also the high school experience that we all sort of have. Is you sort of have your home base group. You can you know people in different things, and everybody's you're figuring it all out. But because it's high school, you sort of have to 
act like you already know how it all works, mm-hmm. even though you don't know anything. Yeah. And what this movie does very well at capturing what I feel like is like the best things and the worst things about small town and small towns in Texas is small towns are such a fishbowl, but what's outside is so mythical and magical. And so the kids talk about, I'm going to go to college or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And they're going to go to Houston to get tickets to Aerosmith. Like that's the big thing to do. But I mean, and Linklater talked about this in some of his interviews. like these kids are stuck in this place. And when you are at that age, everybody's stuck in that place and they can't get out until you find that new world that that allows you to expand yourself and expand your horizons. But if you want to know what it was like to grow up in small town Texas, watch this movie. So, and and you'll find that it's very similar to wherever you grew up exactly. in the United States. Exactly. So uh, as we're getting close in here, let's just go through and just throw out what are some of your favorite songs from this amazing soundtrack? Yeah. I was going to say Slow Ride. I mean, it's the end credit song, but it kind of... Kind of sums it up. It does. It does. It's a good. Great it's a good encapsulation. I have three. Uh, one of them is uh, "War uh, Lowrider" by War, and that's the scene where they're driving around the top hat, uh, the the drive-in, and driving around town, and it's just a great encapsulation of that song. The but, next- but but okay, let's stop and talk about Lowrider for a second. Yeah. Here's my issue with Lowrider. <laughs> It is a great song, and it, it fits the mood and set scene. It is so overused in, it in cinema. Like, it is so overplayed. But it wasn't then. Not then, Not but now it's like, but I, like, I wish we could have kept it in the vault. The other one is The Hurricane by Bob Dylan, and that's the scene at the Emporium where Matthew McConaughey and uh, Pink, they're coming into the uh, into the Emporium pool hall, and they're just he's just cruising through. And it's just like... Cruising through, pointing people, hey, how's it going, yeah. and stuff like that. And that Fantastic. song was not released on any of the actual CDs no, it was that not. were sold. It was not, but it is a, it's a great, it's a great scene. Just a, this is Matthew McConaughey's like coming out party. And then the next one is the actual one of the few actually Texas songs, uh, the song Tush, uh, and it's the beer bash scene. Okay. ZZ Top, ZZ Top. Yeah. Right. Well, I will counter that Texas, a man who. May not be from Texas originally, but moved there in his childhood. Moved there in like 1950. Steve Miller and the Steve Miller Band. And they do Living in the USA. And, uh, you know, some people can take or leave Steve Miller. But I, I do like that song because oh, it, wow. it is kind of a, it is, an, it is very 1976. I also, as a last trivia bit, I found out that, you know, Gene Simmons actually got those statues. Yeah. The, the actual kiss statues from <laughs> they, the movie. They, they take the statues of, for those who haven't seen the movie, they take the statues of the, the piper and the drummer from the American Revolution and paint their faces and kiss makeup. Yeah. And then they, the, but then it turns out Gene Simmons, I think, bought them years later and then yeah. auctioned them off or something. Yeah. But, but you know, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. It was a different time, guys. The movie prominently features an El Camino, too. That's the other car that I loved on, on that movie. Well, I like the coaches, like, you know, busted oh, up Bronco. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One of those old Broncos. Yeah. Which any hipster would kill for these days. Yeah. All right. Well, if you're still listening, I just want you to know that uh, we, we love Texas. We love Texas movies. So, you know, Mr. Linklater, keep making them. You keep making them and we'll keep watching. Rent it or buy it on Amazon or iTunes. It is a great movie. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. 
Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. All right. All right. All right. So you like this show? Well, tell your friends and go to iTunes and leave a review right now because that's what really helps us out and helps us to find new listeners just like you. If you want to support the show directly, go to patreon.com slash Podcast, and you can be a come and take it ranger. And uh, that'd be great. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.